which accidentally gives away Rose's cherished teddy bear, it becomes a war between a rose and a daisy. As they tackle the saga of Fernando, Sophia is kindling a new friendship with Alvin down at the boardwalk. As Blanche and Rose battle Daisy, Sophia and Alvin battle cognitive deterioration. Will Fernando come home in one piece? Will Sophia ever finish that scarf? Grab your tissues. It's time to meet some old friends. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing. And laugh just doing our thing No matter the misters That come and go I hope you know You'll always be my sisters You know it's going to be a busy day when the blue cutlass is in the driveway, so it's no surprise to find the house in shambles when we get inside. Wearing her casual Saturday uniform of jeans, dark pink sweatshirt, and white undershirt, with clicky heels of course, Blanche, who is showing off a season three blowout to the stars poofy new do, is sorting junk into boxes. Dorothy, in her often worn dark multicolored shirt with light blue collared shirt under it, comes in. And we learn that they're gathering items for an upcoming rummage sale, which is different from a garage sale in that it usually has multiple people or groups contributing items and is sometimes used as a means of fundraising. So it's a little different from what they did just last year when Dorothy got into a fight about a hockey stick. Instead of sports equipment, this time Dorothy is donating her iconic baby pink pantsuit. You know, the one with the lace top, which she wore to her daughter's backyard wedding in season one. Blanche can't believe Dorothy would consider getting rid of her best outfit. I mean, it's not like she looks damn good in it with what it does to her butt and boobs, but still, she should keep it. This leaves Dorothy confused. Wait, so it's my best outfit, but I also look terrible in it? Blanche isn't confused. Of course those ideas can coexist. Additionally, this is great news for Dorothy, who only infrequently gets gussied up in much more than her robe on the weekends. Relatable. Coming through the open front door in a yellow uniform and light green sash is Sunshine Cadet, a.k.a. they didn't want to infringe on Girl Scouts' property, Daisy. Sweet little innocent Daisy is being played by Jenny Lewis. Before the work she did with the girls, Jenny was in commercials for Jell-O, Barbie, Baby Skates, Toys R Us, and Corn Pops. Her television work included The Twilight Zone, Webster, Life with Lucy, I guess she didn't love her yet, Mr. Belvedere, Growing Pains, Roseanne, Baywatch, Murder, She Wrote, and let's not forget the films she was in, like Troop Beverly Hills and The Wizard. After acting, Jenny has gone on to write, direct, and produce, usually surrounding her music career, as she and fellow former child star Blake Sennett formed indie rock band Rilo Kiley. And it's bad news, baby. The Wizard was a huge movie for me. Yeah. I was a big Nintendo boy. That's the Fred Savage one, right? Yes. Fred Savage, Jenny Lewis plays a, I don't even know, is she a runaway? But she goes with Fred Savage and his little brother to a 
huge Nintendo tournament that takes place at Universal Studios Hollywood. That was the coolest movie back in the day. I mean, just all the Super Mario 3 footage before it came out, the Power Glove. I was going to say that had the Power Glove, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was incredible and didn't really work, but it looks great. <laughs> and I would wear one if I had one just out. Look at him. He's a wizard. He's headed for the video championship. <laughs> this guy. What is that? Power Glove. Yeah, well, uh, just keep your power gloves up for all right. With a touch of romance. I am not kissing a boy. And a ton of trouble. That's you. But too late. Blanche may not be a sunshine cadet, but she loves their motto, spread it around. That's a little different from the Girl Scout motto of be prepared. It's also different from the actual sunshine cadet motto of spread sunshine around. But, you know, Blanche loves spreading it around. Asking Daisy to get some donations from Rose's bed, Blanche sends the little helper off, who must be new around here because I'm pretty sure she just went into Sophia's room, but who can tell with this mystery house? In her green and navy plaid dress and dark fuchsia cardigan, Sophia enters the picture via the kitchen. She's headed out for one of her favorite activities, sitting at the boardwalk and watching the men adjust themselves after getting out of the water. Good thing she's an 80-year-old woman, otherwise we'd have an oh boy here. Oh, what's that? Oh, age and gender don't matter? It's still inappropriate and we aren't allowed to enjoy anything anymore? Oh, fine. Oh boy, it is. That's right, and even if you microsecond glance the second one, you may not do a third. (laughs) Four or five, and then that's it. <laughs> no more. Well, you know, you go, you, you, I like a nice even number. So if I get to five, I got to go, go to six. Ten. Yeah. Oh, well, might as well. What's that? Six plus four? Ten looks at a lady or a gentleman. I'll check out what you got down there and up there. Your brains, both of you. That's what I care about. Not your sex meat. Sophia's hobby is shocking to Dorothy, giving us a great close-up shot of her, showing off her new, tighter haircut. Since she's headed out to the location of said rummage sale, she's happy to give her pervy mother a ride so she doesn't have to cartwheel the whole way. Returning from the bedroom, Daisy has a pile of what looks to be a quilt, a heart pillow, and a teddy bear, exactly what you'd expect to see come out of Rose's bedroom. Of all of the goodies laying around, Daisy is most shocked to see the teddy bear be in the stack of donations. Daisy is so smitten, calling the bear the cutest thing she's ever seen, that she bemoans out loud how she wishes she could purchase it at the sale. Well, Blanche can't let this young lady, who is already helping, volunteering her time on the weekend, leave sad and without the bear. So, rewarding her work and kindness, Blanche tells her to keep it. Daisy is elated, running out the door. As she does, she just happens to pass and say hello to Rose, who can't see her or what she's leaving with, due to the large flattened boxes she's carrying. Going through the living room in her light blue dress, Rose goes to her room, which is now located at the end of the hall on the left, which I could have sworn was Dorothy's. While Blanche talks to herself about all of the good work Daisy was doing and how her community didn't have a female organization like that, unless you counted the brothel up the hill, where for just a little bit extra, they would stand on their heads for you. Running frantically down the hall, Rose begs Blanche, Have you seen Fernando? You know, the teddy bear I've had since I was six years old. 
Blanche's face drops. She's suddenly very aware of the predicament she's put herself in. In a panic, Rose begins rummaging through all the rummage sale rummages. No sign of Fernando. Trying to calm her friend, but really trying to save her own hide, Blanche asks Rose to forget it. He was just a toy. But that's just not the case. Rose has had him for so long, she's basically codependent. Hoping she can get the bear back, Blanche concocts a plan. Rose will check in the attic. Oh, great. There's an attic now? Where? How big? There's probably a bathroom in it. Or maybe that's just part of Blanche's diversion. Have Rose spend a lot of time looking for an attic. And while she does that, Blanche will be outside just in case the bear walked off. Luckily, it's Rose, so she won't question, well, any of that. What a beautiful Floridian day as we finally get some sunshine out at the boardwalk. Here we find Sophia carefully making her way down gigantic steps before getting to a park bench, a bench that is already occupied by a man in dark slacks, a colorful Florida fauna print shirt, and a tan jacket. It appears Sophia may have met her smart-ass match. When she asks if anyone is sitting there, pointing to the empty spot on the bench, the man inquires if her vision is bad due to clouding of the lens from cataracts or damage to the optic nerve from glaucoma. So much for Sophia being polite. Helping herself to the spot, the man shares that he suffers from both optic ailments, although they've both had surgery to repair what they can. Even though she's claimed to have had corrective eye surgery, Sophia then asks the black man if he's black. Within a few moments, names are called, the amazing Kreskin is mentioned again, and the pair are fighting like dogs. Pointing to the badge clipped on his jacket, Alvin, as we learn his name to be, sort of introduces himself. Accusing him of showing a fake badge, Sophia suggests he just buy a touristy one, home of Wyatt Earp, Dodge City. Except that Alvin's is legit. He is the security guard at the Ocean Mist Hotel on Sundays from noon to one. Unsurprisingly, Sophia thinks she knows someone at that place. As the two process the name and location of who Sophia is wanting Alvin to say hello to on her behalf, they start from Molly Feinberg, ending with Harriet Feinstein and a craving for cranberry juice along the way. Portraying Alvin is Joe Seneca. Not only was Joe an actor, but he was a singer and songwriter, getting his start as a singer in The Three Riffs. Serve mess of barbecued riffs, they're crisp and brown, the best in town. But his musical talents didn't end there. He appeared in Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel video, and long before that, his songwriting skills earned him hits like Talk To Me and Break It To Me Gently, which was performed by Brenda Lee. Break it to me gently So my tears, my tears won't fall too fast In his short, well, compared to other guests, career of only 20 years, Joe made his first appearance in one of Coco's favorite films of all time, The Taking of Pelham 123. Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. Fires 750 rounds of 9mm ammunition per minute. In other words, if all of you simultaneously were to rush me, not a single one of you would get any closer than you are right now. Hey, Mom, are those field guns? Shh. I 
do hope I have made myself understood. Some of his other roles were in Kramer vs. Kramer, The Cosby Show, Spencer for Hire, Mo Better Blues, Matlock, Doogie Howser, M.D., Malcolm X, Law and Order, A Time to Kill, and, fitting to his role on the show, his final film was titled The Longest Memory. He was also in another of Coco's faves, the 1988 remake of The Blob. If it had a mind, you could reason with it. If it had a body, you could shoot it. If it had a heart, you could kill it. The Blob. Terror has no shape. I, w- I would say it's for serious horror fans only, but it's a really great Gory. horror movie. <clears throat> Sorry, I got emotional. <laughs> I think it's a really excellent horror movie. It's funny. It's incredibly gory and, and inventive with that gore. And it turns the blob from something that's laughable to something that's actually funny. Yeah. And scary. So the 88 version is really like what the blob should have been all along. Yeah, there were a lot more implications in the original. Yeah. And far fewer in this one. Yes. <laughs> you get to you get to see what what it what happens when you get blobbed. I love the taking of Pelham 123. It's one of the best movies from the 70s. And it's about a heist. These four men, these four men take a subway train hostage demanding a million dollars from the city of New York, and I believe they have 1 hour to deliver on that or they'll start executing hostages. And it stars Robert Shaw from Jaws, Walter Matthau from The Odd Couple and a million other things, it still holds up. It's like 45 years old or something like that, and the movie still totally holds up. And it just, well, you know, it moves like a train. <gasps> chugga chugga. And it has, a, it has a really great score, too. Mm. Big 70s horns. <laughs> <laughs> After breaking the ice and realizing each could stand the sarcasm test they were both under, Sophia offers him a half of her veal and pepper sandwich. Breaking bread, Sophia finally formally introduces herself, and we leave the pair smiling, their mouths full. Sitting at the kitchen table in her light periwinkle shirt and light mint undershirt, Rose looks devastated as she stares at her coffee. Surprised to see her awake, Dorothy comes in wearing her pink and white nightgown. Well, there's a reason she didn't hear Rose get up. She never went to bed. And this is a week after Fernando went disappearing. As harsh as Dorothy seems, telling Rose it's only a toy and it's been long enough, it's time to move on, it also seems reasonable at a week. I know grief works differently for all, but there's a difference between allowing space and enabling. Rose can't hear it. She won't dismiss her friend who is full of life and love. Oh, and stuffing, as Dorothy reminds her. Getting worked up, Dorothy snaps at Rose that she needs to snap out of it. Rose realizes she's being foolish and probably annoying, but she also has feelings and she can't help that. She knows that given the circumstances, she's got the right to sing the 1932 song written for the Broadway show Earl Carroll's Vanities, I've Got the Right to Sing the Blues, which has since become a jazz standard. Here it is, performed by Billie Holiday. Now 
Now that Dorothy has validated Rose's feelings, leaving her concerned for her own mental well-being, she walks away from the table, just as Sophia comes into the kitchen in a bright blue dress and gray cardigan. It's clear pretty quickly that Sophia is only announcing she won't be home for breakfast as to elicit questions as to why. When no one bites at her first mention of being absent, she adds, Someone is buying me breakfast. Responding with, Someone? Dorothy is shocked. Sophia is pleased to have her attention, so she goes on now that she's been fully badgered. It's Alvin. Yes, from the boardwalk, Rose, not of Alvin and the Chipmunks. Ross Bagdasarian wasn't new to creating records. He had been the producer behind the hit song The Witch Doctor. Using the newfound trick of speeding up the tracks, in 1958, he created the characters Alvin, Simon, and Theodore, three chipmunks with a singing act adopted by human Dave Seville. This leaves Rose excited and confused. Luckily, Blanche is here in a yellow collared shirt and tan pants, and she has great news. She's found Fernando! The light pinkish brown soft bear she presents clearly, barely resembles Fernando. As shocked and delighted as Dorothy and Blanche may be, Rose scoffs, nearly laughing at the presentation of such a fraud. It didn't take details like size, color, or comfort to tip off the girls. Rose can tell by looking into his plastic eyes that that is not Fernando. Dorothy can tell by looking at the still-attached price tag. Busted, Blanche gives it a whoops. Rose appreciates her trying, unlike Dorothy, who just shut her down. It's taken a week, but Blanche is finally ready to confess the location of Fernando to Dorothy. This is fantastic! Dorothy suggests she just call Daisy up and get him back. The thing is, Blanche has called. She did explain the mistake, and Daisy refused to return the bear. It's not just because Daisy wants to keep the bear that she won't return it. She's now holding it for ransom. In 1973, 16-year-old John Paul Getty III was kidnapped because his grandfather, John Getty, you know, like the Getty Museum, was at one time the richest man in the world. A man that refused to pay a $17 million ransom for his grandson, famously saying, quote, I have 14 other grandchildren. If I pay one penny, I'll have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. Speaking of ouch, while John III was captive for months in the Italian region of Calabria, his captors eventually mailed his family a chunk of hair and an ear. He was eventually returned after a smaller payout, but the trauma caused a short, troubled life for John Paul Getty III. His story was told in the Oscar-nominated film All the Money in the World, and his ear being cut off would then be used as a joke on the Golden Girls 15 years later. It's time for you to do whatever it is he pays you to do. Hope your hat as good as everything else he's bought. You need to pay the ransom, Mr. Getty. I do not have the money to spare. No one has ever been richer than you are at this moment. What would it take for you to feel secure? More. More. I'm gonna find your son. Staring at the chunk of fabric and stuffing, Dorothy is horrified, stunned, and speechless. Back to the boardwalk. Sophia and Alvin, dressed in another bright shirt, or maybe it's the same as it was hidden under his jacket before, are focused intently on something. 
pointing out a man on the beach, making sure they're both watching the same guy, the duo keeps staring until, boom, it's official. That guy peed in the water. This new game is a clear favorite of the two, as they've seen it at least four times already that day, leaving them hysterical. Do we know if Sophia and Al ever goofed on any bums? <laughs> a boardwalk seems the perfect place but for you, a bum goof. But you know she likes to take her sherry to the park, and that's where she does her bum goof. Oh, of course. She would never goof a bum at the boardwalk. Oh, does she just knit? What does she do at the boardwalk? She watches oh, the she, old oh, men adjust themselves. I forgot. Wobble, wobble. That's She's right. got no time to goof on a bum. That's true. Or be drunk. She's got to be sharp-eyed for that. <laughs> She's on hot dog patrol. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe a little drunk, she can get double vision, twice the fun. Hot dog fever. <laughs> Two for the price of yum. Hot dog fever. This is a perfect example of why Sophia loves the beach. There's so much people watching to do. She loves it, but Sal sure didn't. Alvin is surprised to learn of a husband, but when Sophia reminds him he's deceased, he feels better about it. Sophia continues, he didn't like the beach because of the people peeing in the water. Curious how Alvin's late wife Edna felt about it, Sophia asks. Unable to have a conversation about his beloved, Alvin changes the subject to the birds. No birds specifically, just the birds. And how at the park, you're supposed to leave them alone. But... Here, there's so much food, even the similar to baked clams, but with added bacon, Clams Casino, the birds at the boardwalk are spoiled. Even though Alvin basically ignored Sophia's question about Edna, like, three times, her frustration towards his lack of an answer makes her push, and she pushes too far. Alvin becomes emotional, finally forcing Sophia to realize that perhaps he was not interested in talking about something so difficult. As the violins gently play and Sophia tries to crack a joke about painful memories and even more painful hits put out by the Scarpoli family, Alvin continues to cry, leaving all of us in tears. At first, Sophia's melon-baller attitude comes out, asking Alvin not to cry. But by the time his head lands on her shoulder and she holds him, showing just how loving of a friendship they have, she finally allows him the space to cry all he needs to. But I do love that in 1988, you were having an adult, an elderly black man crying on the shoulder of a woman. She was kind of pressing him about his wife and he just loses it. And instead of her usual, like, don't cry, don't cry and run away from feelings. And in general, societies like men don't cry, men don't show feeling to let him just weep in her arms. It was really beautiful. Heartbreaking. Yeah, you'd think you forget you're watching a sitcom at that moment. It's mm -hmm. it's still you're still watching a show, but it feels like a much different thing. It was very affecting all of it. Back in the living room, Daisy has come over for negotiations. In her lap, a single-eared Fernando. Now dressed for the day, Dorothy is in her iconic Target version of her nearly donated dress, the pink sweater vest and white collared shirt combo. As Daisy explains she won't give the bear back because he's hers, Dorothy has to refrain from shouting at her, scared they may blow their opportunity at recovery. Daisy, now rocking a teal and blue sweater vest of her own over the yellow uniform, makes a good point. The bear, no matter whose it was, was given to her. That's when Blanche fully admits it was her mistake and she needs the bear back. 
that confession changes Daisy's attitude. From a child that had been wronged and maybe had the right to keep the bear, even if it was the jerk thing to do, to an evil mastermind using the sunshine lesson of paying for your mistakes, which, excuse me, what? What are we teaching these children? So in exchange for the bear, she will take a 10-speed Schwinn bike, which would have cost them around 240 bucks or $570 today. Nearly laughing at the audacity of this child, Dorothy asks, aren't you supposed to be helpful and decent? Yeah, probably, Daisy says. Those lessons were taught at the campout she missed. She'd been in trouble for catching a smoke in the boy's john. When Daisy raises her eyebrows, the girls know they aren't dealing with an average 12-year-old. So Dorothy lets her have it. She will not stand for this, this harassment, these threats. Showing her perhaps too strict or aggressive form of problem-solving with children, Dorothy, the educator, grabs the phone. After giving a monologue about tattling to her folks before having her taken away to a boarding school where she'll never play jump rope or have ice cream again, Daisy is unfazy. She's also an evil plotter. Sure, Dorothy can call her parents. She'll just tell them some mean old ladies took away her toy bear. A toy that, on her way home, had been destroyed in an accident. Blanche and Dorothy were confused about what accident she's referring to when Daisy pulls out a red water gun, but it's full of ink. With a tap of the plastic gun to the bear's plastic eye, the girls are totally screwed. That's when Rose comes in. Frantically, Blanche tries to warn her about the water gun situation, but it's all so chaotic, they're going to need to really slow it down for Rose to understand. Rose doesn't care what Blanche is even saying. She sees Fernando and is delighted he's back. Serving us some real John Doe from Seven, Daisy is surprised to learn Rose hasn't been informed of this hostage situation all along. He didn't know. Understanding she now has the upper hand, yet again, Daisy leaves, gun to Fernando's head, demand for more money made, and a promise to follow through in two days, leaving the women shaken. John Doe has the upper hand. Knowing she has to spill the beans, Blanche explains, through uncomfortable laughter, that she accidentally gifted the bear to Daisy. In her most stern-to-date voice, Rose demands she gets the bear back. But Blanche points out, rather reasonably, that Rose is asking for them to take a toy away from a child, something that is usually only done in metaphor to point out the level of someone's depravity. In a rare swear, Rose doesn't give a crap. Get the damn bear. Okay, I have a conspiracy theory. While in Rose's room, Daisy spotted the cutest bear she'd ever seen and decided to dupe Blanche, that this was her plan all along, either to get a free bear or a bike. Thoughts? I, I couldn't agree more. Knowing, as you see Daisy's actions throughout the episode, that just becomes more and more clear that she set this up from the beginning. That she saw the things on the bed, saw the bear, and was like, oh, I'll just throw the bear on there. It's Rose's room, and she's not here. Blanche won't know the difference. It's the perfect crime. I think she's a, I'm a super girl. evil genius. Yeah, I think she's, she's going to be trouble later. Back to the boardwalk. Sophia is alone and crocheting. When Alvin finally strolls up, late, it has her wondering if he took the wrong bus yet again. Sitting a bit too far to the left on the bench, Alvin is unreasonably upset about Sophia being in his seat. Even when she apologizes and starts to move, Alvin doesn't calm down. 
his voice raising, it's soon clear he isn't just upset about the seat, but at her accusation of him messing up the bus. It wasn't his fault. The driver was the one going the wrong way. In a huff, Alvin storms off, ignoring Sophia's begging of his name. It's the next morning, and Sophia is at the kitchen table, continuing to work on her blue scarf. In her pink robe, she's greeted by Rose in her light blue one. In no mood to talk, when Rose asks what she's doing, Sophia snaps, telling her she's levitating and she can just get lost. Used to the verbal abuse, Rose continues her task of getting breakfast. Quickly, Sophia realizes she was way harsh for no reason. She's just feeling down, which is how Rose is feeling, too. For Sophia, it's that she and Alvin had their big fight. She's making him a scarf, and she's not even sure if they're still friends. Rose can relate even more than Sophia imagined. She no longer has her friend Fernando. So who will wear the tiny teddy bear-sized overalls she made for him that she's kept hidden under the kitchen table for who knows how long? Since Rose held up the overalls without specifically referencing Fernando, Sophia sees the size of them and asks, Oh boy. If Rose broke up with that little person. We've discussed the correct vocabulary. No need to use her language. Which implies that Sophia thinks that the overalls are for Dr. Jonathan Newman from a Little Romance episode. It's possible she thinks this because she hasn't been home much. She might not even be aware of the Fernando drama. I bet if she was, she would know how to handle it. So maybe for Daisy's sake, it's best she wasn't part of it. That's a pretty crappy joke, but it was nice to be reminded of Dr. Jonathan Newman. I know. A beloved character. I think about him often. After that inside joke, the girls commiserate, both sharing feelings about their friends, the comforts they brought, the loss they feel. While Rose shared her bed with Fernando Knightley, Sophia never considered going to bed with Alvin, which, now that she's thinking about it, is kind of surprising. She had always wondered, and will continue to wonder in future episodes, about the size of a black person's penis. And we give that racial stereotype, no matter how flattering it could be considered, an oh boy. For an answer, we turn to sexandpsychology.com. They tell us there have in fact been studies between races and penis size, but there are some hard obstacles to overcome. First, do the men that sign up for penis surveys do so because they are well endowed, therefore screwing, I mean skewing, the results? Are the participants going to great lengths when measuring themselves? Are they being honest about the results? I'm sure the respondents had a ball, but we don't want the results to be shafted. Even with those concerns, it does appear there is a slight, less than one inch, difference. Do you think that that's a reasonable concern that the people that would sign up for a penis size survey would only do so so they could be like, hey, nine inches or whatever? <laughs> I don't know why someone would sign up for a penis survey. <laughs> Maybe some free hot dogs? Um, Rose is delighted and confused, her most natural state. There's a myth about men named Alvin? Yeah, that the name means elf or magical being. So that's pretty fun. Before Sophia can explain the difference between a penis myth and a Greek myth, the doorbell rings. And before Rose can answer it, Blanche comes in from the lanai where she was reading in a silk, light mint nightgown with complimentary robe of the same material but with more colors splashed around. 
Dorothy is there too, dressed in a brown, burgundy, white shirt and pant outfit that I just don't have the energy to dissect. Perhaps she's the only one dressed to prove to Blanche that she does get out of her robe on the weekends. Except Fernando had been gone a week when it was threatened with the ink gun, and that was two days ago, so it's like a Wednesday? Uh, whatever. At the door, with bear in hand, it's Daisy. She's come to a realization. She shouldn't have demanded the bike. Cash makes more sense. Hoping this will all come to an end, Blanche goes to get her purse, but Rose stops her. Perhaps she was wrong to try to take the bear back. Perhaps the journey of Rose and Fernando has come to an end, and he needs to start a new chapter with Daisy, and she'll just have to come to terms with it. That's life. It's hard and unfair. That's not only the lesson Rose is learning, but the one she's teaching Daisy. Sometimes, life just ain't fair, kiddo. And with a grabbing of Fernando from Daisy's arms, Rose shocks everyone by forcibly pushing the wicked child out of the front door before closing it behind her, wrapping her arms tightly around her special little bear, her smile never so big. Coco, I love how engaged and uh, into this episode you were that about eight seconds before that, while she was explaining she needs to move on, you were like, can she just push a kid <laughs> Can she just rip that out of her hands and push her out the door? <laughs> uh, you know, in the 80s, you could do that. <laughs> That's the only reason I said that. That was a back in my day, we could push kids. I don't like little jerk kids who think that they're smarter than adults because you know what, little guys? You're not. You're not nearly as crazy as I am. <laughs> you don't even know. Give me back my bear. <laughs> Delighted the ordeal is over and impressed by Rose's quick thinking, Dorothy and Blanche just laugh on, celebrating her success. We're back to the boardwalk. Sophia, scared he wasn't going to show and equally scared he would still be mad at her, asks Alvin if she's in the right seat upon his arrival. In his white shirt and professor-inspired sweater vest with adorable bow tie, Alvin has arrived with beverages and jokes. Sure, it's the right place to sit, unless you're hoping to catch a bus. Annoyed after his outburst, Sophia, in her navy dress and teal cardigan, reminds him, No, you know what I'm talking about. He may have confused her, but her Italian nonsense confuses him, so they're square. Possibly apologizing, but too ashamed to say sorry, Alvin offers Sophia a beverage. Over Sophia's shoulder, we see Dorothy in the gazebo watching on. Suddenly, another woman approaches her, and we soon learn that she's Alvin's daughter. She's been going to the boardwalk every day to keep an eye on him. She loves the friendship he and Sophia share. So does he. He's even started to call his son-in-law a dumb bajagaloop. Playing Alvin's daughter, Sandra, was Janet McLaughlin. She got her start on the Alfred Hitchcock Hour before working with Rose's father on Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater. Other performances include The Fugitive, The Girl from Uncle, Star Trek, Mod Squad, Mary Tyler Moore, Sounder, Alias, Home Improvement, Murphy Brown, Moonlighting, and of course, La La. Before passing away in 2010, Janet won a local Emmy for her performance with Los Angeles KCET's Voices of Our People in celebration of black poetry in 1981. She would also be the chairman of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Grant Committee. Dorothy wanted to be at the boardwalk in case there were any leftover emotions from the fight the day before. Sandra wanted to be there because she's always there watching her dad. 
back to the bench, Sophia is harping about the lack of ice and therefore lack of chill to her drink. Alvin is demanding she shut up and be grateful. They're a perfect pair. After calming herself down, Sophia genuinely thanks him. She hopes they can just move on from that mess the day before. Since he seems willing to forget about it, so is she. But the thing is, he's not willing to forget about it. He has no choice. While Sophia might have difficulty remembering simple things due to age, Alvin's situation is much more dire. Back to the kitchen, a teal-clad Blanche is going on at Rose about her interaction at the mall, where she was shopping in Ladies Petite before a salesman hit on her and he tried to make a date, yet somehow she was offended. All Rose cares about is the mystery of what Blanche was doing in Ladies Petite. What a great way to use her stupidity to work in a really fantastic burn. Finding Sophia still working on that scarf in her room, Dorothy comes in. After explaining that she wanted to check on her in case there were any issues and then meeting Alvin's daughter, Dorothy breaks the news. No, not that Gino the Enforcer, who has probably broken several knees in his day, is out on the loose. Much like Alvin and the birds, Sophia is using her Gino joke as a distraction. She doesn't want it to be true. She doesn't want to hear the words. She's not dumb. She's known all along that something was off with Alvin. That's when Dorothy lays it on her. He has Alzheimer's. It started with him wandering, and since Sandra has had to miss so much work taking care of him, the family has decided that the best thing they can do is send him to his doctor nephew in New York, and this will happen within the next eight weeks. Sophia doesn't respond to the news directly. She responds to life, that when you get old, it's not about having more life, it's about experiencing more loss and more heartache, and learning that just when you think something good has been brought to you, it can get ripped away. Sophia is more inspired than ever to finish her scarf. We're back to the boardwalk one last time. It's been two months. It's later in the year. Sophia and Dorothy both bundled up. It's nighttime, and Sophia's been sitting on the bench for a while, waiting, hoping for his return. She finally finished the scarf and was ready to give it to him, but she won't be able to do so in person. He's been sent to New York. Even though she didn't get to say goodbye, Sophia promises to remember Alvin. She'll send him the scarf, so her memory of him won't be tainted by his decline. So for now, she'll just have to carry on his memory, even going so far as to scream at strangers to not sit on the empty bench, because someone's sitting there. The someone who had been sitting there was an extra extra. Stephen Taylor, who has been an actor in Teen Wolf 2, Days of Our Lives, and Santa Barbara. He was also the writer, director, cinematographer, and editor for Port of Angels. This episode would land Estelle her first and only Emmy win for the girls. Like Mother, Like Daughter, B also won that year as well for My Brother, My Father. Old Friends would also land an Emmy for technical direction. Picture it, California, 1988. <laughs> This is such a big thrill, and I know that I can't take too much time, but I want to thank the immediate world. And the reason that I'm standing up here, the three most beautiful, generous, wonderful, talented ladies, my daughter, B. Arthur, and her two roommates, Rue McClanahan and Betty White. Thank you. Thank you to the Some losses we have returned. Others stay as only memories. The lesson from today's episode? Life isn't fair. I read something the other day talking about how we teach our children at a young age, life isn't fair. You can't cry about losing the game. Life just isn't fair. 
and how there really isn't a need for that negativity to be instilled in us when we're young. It's okay for kids, even adults, to feel like life should be fair and to fight for that. And sometimes, like when kidnapped bears are involved, there is so much unfairness going on, there's no way to keep both sides happy. And that's just the way life goes sometimes, kid. Timing can feel unfair sometimes, too. I know for me, I feel ripped off that even though Coco and I have been friends for nearly a decade, our love is relatively new. We're both near 40, and the idea of getting to have, what, only 50, 60 more years with him instead of having been together since our 20s makes me bitter sometimes. But I also know that any second I get to spend with him is one more than it had been, and I'll take it. Like my favorite Janis Joplin quote, which I reference often, say you want a cat for 365 days, you're given a cat, but only for one day. You can spend that day crying about the 364 days, or you can spend that day loving that cat. And that's exactly what Sophia did. She loved Alvin every moment she could, although a call from his family to say goodbye would have been nice. But I guess life just isn't fair. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we explore scams and schemes in One for the Money. Hey, why not the me beat the Gucci? A Gucci. Oh, yes, I'm an Italian. But why won't you let me make the clothes? I'm your grandson. I need to make the Gucci. Why don't you love me, daddy? You know, a much larger thing. It's a bigger piece of the pie. So it's like, oh, what's, <laughs> what's an inch? Who cares? Sorry, I laughed when you said pie. I thought of <laughs> a bunch of wieners in a pie. Hot dog pie, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I got pretty stoned today. Is that anything? Did we do anything? Something that is usually only done in metaphor to point out the level of someone's depravity. To point out the level of someone's depravity. Oh, my God. I like that word. I use that word. Depravity. Wait. It's depravity. She's also an evil. Evil. <laughs> Ooh. That's my facial bush. Whoa, hey, whoa, hey, 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 come on now, come on now. Dorothy is donating her iconic baby pink sant... Sant poot. It's pantsuit. Boo! Coco, are you a fan? She was a douche. Yeah, I guess the way that your dad can't listen to Fleetwood Mac, right? Yeah. Or you too. Or you also. He loves you too. I'm sorry I screamed. Like, all I know is... It's called art. It doesn't fit into a box. <laughs> Music box. Oh, Mariah Carey. <laughs> Sweet fantasy baby. <laughs> I can't do it. I love when you sing. <laughs> Thank you. Even when it's goofy. I was that was serious. You just have that laughing illness. <clears throat> like the Joker. Yeah, but that's Riddle a, me this. It's a real thing. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know Fabio's our neighbor. You could be like, oh my God, I love you, Fabio. That time you got hit in the face by a goose <laughs> was 
a highlight. Magical. Heavenly. <laughs> you looked great with a smashed goose face. So it's like, hey, guys, don't you wish you could be with your girl laying on a fire with the champagne and kissing? Never understood the appeal of that Me person. Me neither. Even as a child, no. I, was, I wasn't like. Who's into this? Tight and dry, I call it. I say Fabio, you say... Faba, no. <laughs> no, I meant to name another oh. celebrity. Oh. <laughs> Even though she's claimed to have a... I don't know. She's got the right to sing the 1932 song written for the Broadway show. show. Really big show. It also seems reasonable at a week. Wait, no. Blah, 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 blah. Sitting at the kitchen table in her light periwinkle shirt and light mint tea... I guess I should say T-shirt since it's saying mint and then it sounds like mint tea and like she's drinking it and she's wearing mint tea or something. You're being a silly goose today. <laughs> quack, quack. quack. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.